Welcome to Stern Chats. We're your hosts, Lauren Marinero and Melanie Gonzalez. Today, we're talking to Gina Smilik, a fellow part-time Sterny and New York Times reporter who covers the Federal Reserve Board. Gina's also writing her first book on the modern Fed, set to be published in 2022. Today, we get to know Gina, what attracted her to business journalism in Stern, and learn a little bit about her upcoming book. Gina teased that her book covers Section 13.3 nerdery, a little Fed history, and at least one Gossip Girl reference. Let's dive in, shall we? From New York University Stern campus, this is Stern Chats, the podcast that tells the hidden stories between the lines of someone's resume. In the interest of serving the Stern community, building relationships, and unlocking important life lessons, we present these stories to a wider audience. Gina, welcome to Stern Chats. We're so glad to have you with us. Thanks for having me. Uh, to get us started, we'd love to just hear a little bit more about you and, and your career uh, as a journalist and to maybe dive right into that first question. What uh, Did you always have a passion for writing and, and reporting? Yeah, so I always knew I wanted to be a journalist. Um, I did not always know I wanted to be a business journalist. I cover I cover the Federal Reserve and economics at the New York Times, um, so pretty specific and, and niche beat there. Um, I always knew I wanted to do something that involved writing, and I, I pre- preferably wanted to work in a newspaper. Um, but the the way. I ended up where I actually am is that um, I went to the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill for undergrad, um, and I was studying journalism and global studies, actually. And at the time, it was, you know, shortly after the recession, there weren't a ton of jobs, and Bloomberg was really the place doing all the hiring at the time. And so I think a whole generation of journalism students basically got into business journalism because that's where the jobs were. Um, But it ended up being a great fit for me. And I really loved Bloomberg. And I thought it was a really interesting place to work. It was my first job out of college. Um, I kind of fell right into the economics team. And I've never really left the beat. And so I've been covering the Fed for like seven years now, and then ended up at the Times a couple of years ago. And so what uh, made you switch to the New York Times? So I was looking, you know, I had been at Bloomberg on the economics beat and, you know, covering the Fed in particular for a number of years. And I was really interested. It was a fun job. Uh, Bloomberg's a cool place because you get to do a little bit of, you know, writing, a little bit of television, a little bit of radio, kind of a bit of everything. Um, So I was enjoying that. But I was kind of trying to figure out what was next in my career. Um, And then my colleague at the Times, Neil Irwin and Jim Tankersley, so actually two of them, um, reached out to me and asked if I would have any interest in interviewing uh, with the Times for the Secon job. And it just sounded like a really cool opportunity. You know, it was a chance to completely own the Fed beat because the Fed, the Times only has one new side Federal Reserve reporter at any time. Uh, my colleague Neil covers the Fed, but in a sort of more an analytical way. Um, and so it was just this opportunity to kind of, you know, take something and make it your own. And I thought that was really exciting. Um, so I went from working on a team at Bloomberg, where I worked with five other guys, um, to just working by myself, really. And then I'm on a team, but everybody has their own beat at the time. So my colleague Alan covers the Treasury, my friend friend Anna covers trade, Jim covers policy, but I'm, I'm the only Fed reporter. So it was, it was a fun opportunity. Uh, just curious, what um, what was it like being the only woman on an all-men team uh, at uh, Bloomberg in, in business journalism? Yeah, I mean, I think it was it was interesting. It was at, at a time when 
I think the Fed beat in general was a little bit more man heavy. You know, there are a lot of women covering the Fed now. Um, but back in the day, that was not necessarily true. Um, and, you know, it was it was interesting because I think um, obviously it affects, I think, how you interact during pitch meetings and certainly during uh, like any any sort of team interaction. I think it made me like maybe a little bit more outspoken than I otherwise would have been because it was my inauguration into the workplace. I'd never been on any other kind of team. Um, and so I, I think it was really useful, actually. It was like it was all you knew at the time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I did. I spent a little bit of time on our indicators team in Washington. So indicators means you cover a sort of uh, economic data. Um, and that was actually all, all, almost all women. The bosses were men, but the, my colleagues were all women, but I was only on that team for like a year and a half. So I spent basically the bulk of my time in, in Washington uh, at Bloomberg on this all-male men team or all-male Fed team. Um, and so, yeah, so it was, it was basically all I had known. Uh, but, you know, it was, they were, they were great guys and they were a lot of fun to work with. And so, you know, I think so much of any workplace is the personalities you're interacting with. And I feel like I got really lucky in that regard. Yeah, definitely. And so at the time you said um, you didn't know you wanted to do business journalism, but the opportunity with Bloomberg presented itself and you never looked back. Um, what do you find particularly interesting about business journalism and, and ultimately reporting about the Fed? I think the thing I really like about business journalism is you just have this ability to go deeper and deeper into a story and find things that people might otherwise miss. You know, I think political stories, you can certainly do that. Any kind of investigative work you can. But in business, just so much of it is obscured by numbers and figures and sort of the, the fact that it is often an area that lends itself to like high specialization. Um, I think a great example of this, and the the one that really attracted me, it was kind of playing out right when I was joining the the field, um, is the subprime market market blow up in the in two thousand seven two thousand eight. You know, MBS was a thing people knew about. People knew that these mortgage backed securities were kind of dicey, and that the underlying uh, mortgages be being bundled into, into them didn't look great, and that maybe the ratings weren't perfect. But like it was just so underreported at the time. And I think if the same thing happened today, I think you would at least get a couple more stories about it because I think people pay more attention and like there's just been this real move in journalism to recognize that these really specialist um, areas are really important and we ought, ought to be looking under those corners, sort of into those corners of markets. Um, and so I think it's a really exciting um, opportunity to kind of delve deeply into a topic um, that maybe maybe nobody else is looking at. That said, do you have a favorite story that you've covered or a favorite memory uh, from your career in journalism? Oh, that's a really or a one. few. You can you can give a few. <laughs> I'm sure it's hard to choose. I think my favorite, I think my favorite story I've covered was actually one I did while I was back at Bloomberg. Probably, um, my my colleague Patty Laya and I did. It was I think it was like 20. It must have been 2016. It must have been, it was right around the Trump election. Um, and we did this story that looked at um, sort of the lingering after effects of the Great Recession that were still present in 2016. So like seven years after the recession had officially ended, we still knew that there was labor market slack. And people were starting to say, you know, hey, we might be kind of at full employment, or at least we're approaching that that metric. Um, but it still didn't feel like it. Like if you talk to people on the ground, they were still complaining about the labor market all the time. 
And so we went out and we just kind of asked, you know, we, we kind of figured out five buckets of people who we thought were still a little bit disenfranchised, even in a strong labor market. We went out and we found examples of those people. And so for her part, she went and, you know, talked to a man with disabilities in Florida. For my part, I went to, I went and actually stayed with a nun in Mingo, West Virginia, which is like right on the border of Kentucky and West Virginia. And it's like kind of like remote, like not super populated, um, heavily coal town, like the the industry is all coal there. Um, and I actually, I met this, this great person who was really interesting and ended up being sort of the focal point of the story, um, who just had a lot of challenges. You know, his mom had died of a drug overdose. He himself had had drug problems. He'd lost a job because of it. Um, he was gay in an area where that was just completely not accepted. You know, he had, he had just had like all of these challenges thrown at him and he's still applying to all these jobs and he just couldn't get any because he had this marred resume. Um, and I think he spoke so eloquently toward how a labor market can matter for real people. You know, like he, he was the, to me, he's the perfect encapsulation of why these economic issues we're talking about aren't just some sort of esoteric, you know, removed thing. They're like real life for people because he hadn't been able to get a job. And so he couldn't leave this town. He didn't have any money, so he couldn't move, even though he knew he needed out. Um, and eventually he did end up getting a job years later. I've, I've kept up with him in the time since. He did end up getting a job. He did end up like having these opportunities to move beyond that town. Um, but I think those are the kind of people who get left behind in economies that are imperfect. And like, it's easy to lose sight of them when you're living on a coast and the labor markets tend to be a little bit more robust. Um, but I, I think it was my favorite story because of that. You mentioned staying in touch with uh, this one interviewee. Um, do you stay in touch with a lot of folks that you interview? You know, increasingly as my career has gone on, I have, um, especially the people, I mean, it's, it's a lot of people that you interview when you cover the policy space are just sources. You know, they're just sort of people you keep up with on a day-to-day -day basis policymakers you've covered, economists, people who are experts in the field. And so those people you are always keeping in touch with. The, the people who I've started to keep in touch with as my career has progressed are the people who I meet who are you know, seemingly one-offs. So like people who are anecdotes and stories. Um, and the reason I've done that is because sometimes you can just learn so much from sort of like quote unquote ordinary people, like the people who are not making these decisions, but who are fundamentally at the end of the day, the people the decisions are made about. Um, and, and so I think it can be really interesting. Um, like in the coronavirus pandemic, for example, I've been keeping in touch with um, a guy I had interviewed for a story actually right before the crisis started. He had just gotten a job. Um, he was really excited about it. And we've kind of kept tabs on like how he's keeping in, like whether he's been capable of keeping that job, how demand is, whether he thinks it's going to stay around. And so that's been really interesting. So you talked a little bit about um, how there's always that opportunity to dig deeper. Um, and there's just so many stories out there that need to be covered. So I'm curious how you decide, you know, which stories to cover. Of course, you have to cover the ones that everyone's covering, right, that are very apparent news. But how about, you know, some of those other stories that might be left behind? How do you how do you go about choosing all of that? I think a lot of it's just news judgment, which is to say it's imperfect because it's human judgment. You know, <laughs> you, you don't have like a super scientific process. You just kind of have to think like, what are people paying attention to? What's going to be interesting? What has potential for impact? Um, and obviously these decisions aren't made in a vacuum. You make them together with editors and colleagues and et cetera. Um, I, think, I think recently the sort of 
big questions have been, you know, does it have a policy impact? Because so much of what we write, I think right now, is feeding into the policymaking process. Um, so you kind of have to think about, like, if you're going to write a story, you're choosing to spend your time on that and not on dissecting some piece of legislation that could potentially pass. And so you, I think you have to have, like, a justification for that in your brain. Um, likewise, I think right now, you've just kind of got to think about, you know, what what's the impact two or three years down the road because COVID is important now and it's important for us to cover this stuff but you know what are what are the things that are going to last um and so you know it's because it's easy I think when you're covering something like the Fed and there's so much news every day like you could write a million stories about the Federal Reserve right now but it's important to think you know what's what are the legacy issues here like what mm -hmm. are we all going to be talking about five years down the road about, you know, is, is it going to be this like minor change to one of their lending facilities or is it going to be the shift they're making toward targeting fuller employment? Probably the latter, you know? And, you know, you you have so much knowledge on the Fed um, and you know, business and how it affects policy in general. Did this, I don't want to, you know, lead here, but did, is this what led you to pursue an MBA or is there uh, uh, maybe a less obvious reason <laughs> that brought you to Stern. Yeah, well, so I wanted to do, I knew I wanted to go to graduate school. Um, I was I was living in D.C. Um, when I was thinking about going to grad school, living in D.C., and I knew I wanted to go to graduate school, and I was kind of, you know, thinking about either a part-time law degree or a part-time MBA. Um, and my one of my friends actually had done the part-time MBA program at Stern, and she just had a really fantastic experience. She really liked it. Um, she told me a lot about her professors. She really she had Oaken, who she really liked. Um, I remember at the time, <laughs> time her Oaken. telling me about him. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, and so she had she had had this really fantastic experience, and she kind of you know walked me through the curriculum a bit, and I found it really appealing that you could do the entire coursework of an MBA, but do it part-time um, because basically no other schools offer that in the same format. Um, you know, there are other schools where you can do an executive MBA, but it's very difficult to find one that lets you do like every single class. Um, and it's very difficult to find one that lets you take so many of the like the same classes the full-time students are taking. Um, and so I thought, I, th I really liked that. I found it appealing that you could take the same faculty and like the program was basically undiminished by being part-time. Um, and so I knew I wanted to make a, a career move anyway up to New York. And so I convinced my boss and moved to New York and, and started at Stern, um, which has been a great experience. You know, it's it's a really like, I think in journalism in general, there's a trend toward employing experts um, and people who like really, really know what they're doing. And so when you're working with a bunch of people who have econ degrees on a day-to-day -day basis, it can get a little intimidating. And I think the MBA really helps you to like hold your own a little bit more. It's certainly not, it's it's not the same as an econ PhD, <laughs> obviously, <laughs> but it, it is useful in the sense of if you're talking about markets or if you're talking about you know, like even some like of the more complicated statistical stuff that used to confuse me, I feel like much better equipped after the program to to handle. I was curious because you mentioned uh, you're trying to choose between a law degree or an MBA. And I'm curious to know what your thought process was. Is it because you're primarily working in the, the business to policy angle in D.C.? Yeah, you mean on law? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so basically, so much. Yeah. So much of policy comes back to law. I've actually spent my 
basically entire year <laughs> reporting on derivations of the CARES Act. <laughs> you know, the, the absolutely the biggest story in economics right now is the way that the Treasury Secretary is choosing to interpret part of that statute. Mm -hmm. um, and so it can be the case that law is super important. Um, and it can be occasionally to me, because I'm a perfectionist, a little bit frustrating to read a law and know that you're not an authority, sufficient authority to actually interpret it. Like it's it's great to have sources and be able to call them and, and ask them and make sure you have someone who is an authority interpreting it for you. But sometimes it would be nicer to just be able to interpret it yourself. Um, that said, I mean, I think the same thing used to apply to me, apply for me when I was reading a balance sheet, you know, like I would, I would read a balance sheet and not really know what I was looking at. And now I don't have that problem. Uh, I still have the law problem. <laughs> so given that we have um, a lot of prospective students that also listen to our podcast, I'm sure they would love to hear from you what your favorite part about Stern has been thus far. I have, I mean, I think the, the obvious answer there is sometimes the non-curricular activities are the most fun. Like it's been really great to get to know the other students. I was actually surprised by what a incredibly professionally diverse group of people I've been in classes with. Um, like my, out of like my best friends at Stern, like one works at Goldman Sachs in tech and like one works in like dental sales, one works at like a manufacturing company, one works in like flavorings. Like she like does the business and sourcing side of like a flavor of flavoring manufacturer. Like it's just so, so different. Like everybody does something. So one works in reinsurance, you know, like it's one, one's a labor organizer. Like, you know, like you just, you get so many different worlds intersecting at one time. And I think that makes for really interesting conversations. Um, like when it comes to the curriculum, I think I've really loved uh, Professor Schmeitz's classes. So she teaches uh, corporate finance and then valuation. And I've taken both and I've like, they've been hands down my favorite classes. I love, I've, I've taken many classes I really liked at Stern, but I loved the valuation course. And actually it's, it's funny for, you know, this is a podcast, so folks can't, can't see um, what we're seeing, but as uh, <laughs> Gina was describing the, just the diversity of all the, all of our classmates, Melanie and I were like shaking, our, nodding our heads along like, oh yeah, that's, that's 100%, <laughs> um, the uh, sentiment there. Um, so actually we might take a short break and when we come back, we're going to talk all about your new book coming out. Okay, great. Stern Chats is brought to you by The Person You Mean to Be. The Person You Mean to Be is an inspiring book by social psychologist and NYU Stern professor Dolly Chug on how to confront difficult issues, including sexism, racism, inequality, and injustice, so that you can make the world and yourself better. How do we stand up for our values? How do we respectfully talk politics with those who disagree with us? How can we be better colleagues and avoid being well-intentioned barriers to equality? Dali Chug answers these questions by starting with a look at ourselves. New York Times bestselling author Adam Grant says, Finally, an engaging, evidence-based book about how to battle biases, champion diversity and inclusion, and advocate for those who lack power and privilege. The Person You Mean to Be is available on Amazon or at dollychug.com. That's D-O-L-L-Y-C-H-U-G-H dot com. And by the way, you can also check out her free monthly newsletter, Dear Good People, at the same website, dollychug.com. Welcome back to Stern Chats. We are chatting with Gina Smilik 
and we are just about to dive into uh, learning more about Gina's new book coming out on the Fed. And actually, with that being said, I don't want to uh, spoil anything or just interpret this completely incorrectly. So, Gina, will you do us a favor and tell us a little bit about your book? Sure. Um, so it's not coming out till 2022. So we've got some time. Um, long, long lead here. Um, but it is, it's published by Knopf. Um, it is a book on the modern Fed and sort of how it's changing under its its new leadership. Um, and so it kind of traces the, the story of the Fed basically from its founding, but with a heavy focus on sort of the post-Greenspan era. So a lot of people know about Alan Greenspan, right? Like he's famous. Bob Woodward, Bob Woodward called him the maestro. People watched his briefcase. Like there's a lot of Greenspan lore. Um, but I think that there have been some really underappreciated and really interesting changes that have sort of swept the institution since he left it. Um, so people know Ben Bernanke, obviously he instituted this massive unbuying program. And I think that's what people know about him. Some people like remember the helicopter ben, ben memes or comics, you know, Janet Yellen, I think people like recognize her, but maybe don't know as much about the policies policy she instituted. And then Jerome Powell, who is sort of the focus of the book, um, the current Fed chair, has done some really interesting things to kind of accelerate the, the changes that both of them had started to institute at the Fed. So a lot of it is about the Fed sort of becoming a little bit more transparent, a little bit more open, and certainly more communicative with the public. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's a story about how the sort of populism that's reshaped American politics, I think, in the last decade has really been sort of integral to the story at the Fed. Um, and I, I think in a way that maybe hasn't been told yet. And so it's it's like a little bit chatty. I've got a Gossip Girl reference in there, which I maybe have got on Twitter and people still, still are making fun of me about. It's got like, a, it does it has a little gossip. It has like a little bit of like fun, like inside the institution intrigue. I think I think it'll be fun. I think, I think it will not be like other Fed books you've read. Like it's very casual. So hopefully it'll be a good read. I love that. Um, and did you know you always wanted to write a book? Um, you know, you said a little bit that there were some stories you felt that needed to be shared, but what really kind of made you put that pen to paper? So I knew I wanted to write a book, but I actually wanted to write a completely different book, not about the Fed. Mm. Like I was like getting ready to like try and find an agent and everything. Um, and then the, this crisis happened, right? Like the, the pandemic started in February and in March, we nearly had a real financial crisis, which I think is still an underappreciated fact, actually. Like people know that the stock market crashed, but like we almost had a disaster. Like the treasury market was crashing. Every money market was crashing. Like things were not working. And the Fed swooped in and like rolled out this massive rescue package, bigger than anything it did in 2008. Certainly fast. Maybe, maybe not bigger, but certainly faster. Like it was very dramatic. Um, and I was just, you know, I basically worked every hour of that month that I wasn't sleeping. <laughs> and um, I was like, one day I was sitting on the middle of my I was living in a studio at the time and I'm sitting in the middle of my studio floor, just like surrounded by notes because I had them in like piles because I couldn't keep up. So I was just like piling my like handwritten notes because I wasn't in the office and I didn't have a filing system yet. I'm like sitting there and I'm surrounded by all these notes and I'm like, stuff is also interesting. I'm never going to get to publish it. And that's such a bummer because like some of this is really like fascinating from like an inside, like this is how the sausage got made kind of, uh, perspective and it just like hit me I'm like why don't I write a book like I, I don't think I'm gonna write like the next too big to fail but like this is like 
a really, there's like a lot of really interesting stuff here. Um, and so I called up a friend who knew a friend who had an agent and like, anyway, found an agent, the agent liked the idea. We pitched it around some publishers liked the idea. And so, yeah, so now I'm writing a book. That's so fantastic. And, you know, just for our listeners as well, um, I, I feel like not everybody really has a handle on what the Fed does um, on a, you know, on a regular basis. I mean, are they, you know, just swooping in to save, um, you know, the labor markets when need be, or, you know, could you give us a little bit more background on maybe the history of the Fed, like who, who what they are, and then maybe what they're trying to become? Right, absolutely. So the Fed, the Fed, you know, any Fed historian will tell you that the Fed has had many foundings. But I think a convenient date to start at is 1907. So there's this massive financial panic in the United States in 1907. Um, J.P. Morgan, like the original J.P. Morgan, is like the financier who like saves the world every time one of these panics happens. And so he swoops in a little bit late this time, and the system starts to really crash. Knickerbocker Trust, you may have heard of it, starts like just unraveling. Everything is going badly. And it's a crisis like America hasn't experienced before, although it is it, in the sense that it is much larger than the previous ones, but it is just the sort of latest expression of what had been an ongoing pattern of financial panics. And so everybody after this big disaster that really hurts the economy kind of takes a look at one another and says like, we need a central bank in this country. Like we don't have anyone organizing things. We can't just count on JP Morgan to come and save the day. Every time this happens, he's, he's gonna die eventually. Like we don't have a backup plan. And so that is how the Fed is born, essentially. Um, the, it quite famously, the original plan was hatched up on this like clandestine meeting where a bunch of bankers and a couple of Senate staffers got together on Jekyll Island, which is off the coast of Georgia. And they like pretended it was a duck hunting expedition, but actually they like got together to draft up a plan for a central bank that is not the one that originally, that eventually got enacted. <laughs> um, but it did, it did definitely inform the eventual, eventual version, uh, which Woodrow Wilson signed into effect. Um, so anyway, so we, we get a central bank uh, a little bit after 1910 and we, it wasn't really useful for, <laughs> for the first couple of decades. It was basically engaged in war finance. It came onto the scene <laughs> just as World War One was breaking out. You know, central banking in, in war is not super useful. So you have central, you have World War One, and it helps with war finance. You have World War Two, and it helps with war finance again. And then the Great Recession happens, uh, or sorry, and in between the Great Recession happens. And so like it's it's just have like, having like all these disasters. There's a massive reform. Um, Mariner Eccles, who ended up being a very famous Fed chairman, kind of comes, swoops in, ends up becoming the chairman and says, you know, we're going to have to change everything about the central bank. It's not working in its current format. And that's how we get the actual Fed as it works today. So it was originally an institution designed to stave off financial panics, and it still does that. It has emergency lending authorities. If markets are going haywire, it can step in and just basically lend into them to try and make sure that money is, continues to flow and we get through the crisis. Uh, but more importantly, and the thing that people probably know about today is it's a uh, 12-member Federal Open Market Committee sets interest rates. Um, so it basically regulates the price of money um, at the end of the day. And by setting interest rates, it affects demand in the economy. Um, when it stokes demand by lowering interest rates, we have, you know, lower unemployment, potentially higher inflation. And when it, you know, hurts demand by increasing interest rates, you have higher unemployment and 
arguably lower inflation. Um, so that's kind of the, the Fed's dual mandate is maximum uh, employment and stable prices. Um, and it defines that as around 2% price gains annually. Um, and so that kind of sums it up. So lender last resort, stable prices, full employment. So I'm curious, you know, how do you go about choosing what's in the book and unfortunately what you have to cut from it? Because I'm sure that must be rather difficult to do. Yeah, so actually I think I think in this regard I've got really lucky in that my agent forced me to do an extremely detailed proposal before I ever pitched this book, which included like a ridiculously detailed uh, draft, like table of contents with like a very, very uh, precise outline. And so it's saved me from cutting too much as I'm writing because I kind of like know where I'm headed. Like I don't get off on a massive tangents because I do have an outline. Um, but I think, I think the, the one thing that I'm trying to make sure I do in this book is have it be thematic. Like it's not just a chronology. Like I'm not, I am telling you what happened in this crisis. Like a lot of it is based on my notes, but I like, it has a broader point, which is that the Fed is opening up um, and the Fed is opening up with limitations because of the way it, it's structured. And so, so much of it is just centered around like how, what is happening and what has happened in recent years feeds into that sort of overarching tension. Um, and so it's good because it keeps you a little bit focused. And when you say like it's shifting, what do you mean? Like what's exactly occurring in, in this shift? Right. So I think I think one thing that many people know about the Fed is that it was a little bit secretive under Alan Greenspan. Right. I, I think the famous books that people know about are Secrets of the Temple by William Grader, um, which is mostly about the Volcker Fed. But, you know, it was a temple. Like people saw it as like the high priests making monetary policy in this clandestine way and then handing it down to the masses. Um, so Secrets of the Temple is really famous. The Man Who Knew is the famous Greenspan biography or Maestro. Like I think I think they all sort of evoke this idea of these like almost like demigod central bankers, right? And everything was very secretive. Greenspan used to not even, uh, during the sort of early Greenspan years, they didn't even release rate decisions. You just had to look at markets and see how things were adjusting to try and figure out if the Fed had, in fact, changed interest rates. Um, they didn't release transcripts initially. They didn't release decisions. Like, nothing, nothing was released. Um, and Greenspan, you know, somewhat famously <laughs> once told Congress that if they uh, understood him, they must be confused because <laughs> he was not trying to be understood. And he said that in the job, he had learned how to mumble with great incoherence. Um, <laughs> so yeah, so you get you get a feel for it. You know, he was, they were, they were not super forthcoming and they, they very much believed that that served a purpose. You know, they thought that making policy sort of outside of the glare of the public enabled them to have like a really good academic debate and that helped them to set more optimal policy because they weren't bending to sort some sort of like short-term political will. They were sort of thinking about the, this almost as an academic exercise. However, I think they started to decide in, in the 90s under congressional pressure that they were, after all, a government agency and they needed to open up a little bit. Um, and I think in the 2000s, and especially when Bernanke came, they realized that there actually might be benefits to opening up. You know, if you tell markets that you're going to move interest rates, markets just adjust. You know, they the, the move can be a lot more effective because you're transparent about it. And so I think there was sort of this era of transparency for Congress's sake. Then there's this era of transparency for practicality's sake. And I think now we've kind of reached this new era of transparency for transparency's sake. You know, we've we've seen the Fed become a lot more transparent. 
not completely transparent, but a lot more transparent. Um, and we've seen them be sort of a lot more open-minded about the way they're setting policy. It used to be the case that they were heavily focused on inflation. They kind of, you know, spoke about full employment. They gave it some lip service. It was clearly not the main target. Um, they have, I think, changed that view in probably the last decade, but really severely in the last five years, mostly because inflation has been totally benign. They just haven't had to worry about it. And so in this environment, they can really sort of test the limits of the labor market. And I think they're really embracing that role. And they did it in a much more nimble way than you might have expected if you were me covering the Fed seven years ago, because it seemed like they were never going to change. Um, and so I think I think there have been a couple of really interesting changes um, that make them a little bit more in line with the era, right? Like we're at it, we, we live in a moment when people question the power of government agencies. And I think particularly bureaucracies that are led by a bunch of Ivy League educated PhDs. Um, and so, you know, these are unelected leaders and I think they're recognizing the need to sort of, you know, defend defend their position at the table a little bit. So it's sort of the a, a story of the political context that they're, they're existing within and also how they're responding to outside forces and practical needs. This might be an obvious follow-up, but how did COVID accelerate this uh, increased transparency and focus on uh, more more the labor markets? I think I think a lot of it was in train prior to COVID. Um, I think they're getting a real time adventure in testing out their new framework. So basically, Jerome Powell, when he became Fed chair in 2018, sort of looked around at his colleagues and said, "You know what, guys? Interest rates are low." They don't seem like they're going to go up. We're going to be stuck at zero all the time in the future. And inflation is nowhere to be found. Like, we need to think about how we're setting policy. We need to, like, review what we're doing. The world has changed. We need to change with it. And so the Fed had been engaged in this, like, years-long framework review. Like, they were asking everybody, you know, what should we be doing? How do we need to change our policy to adjust to this brave new world, et cetera, et cetera. And it was supposed to be this sort of, like, very thoughtful, like, theoretical exercise where they were considering what they ought to do in the future if they ever had a recession, like, you know, inevitably there would be a recession again, they'd have to cut to zero, blah, blah, blah. You know, all these problems would happen. Um, so they were like three quarters of the way through their framework review, pretty close to ending it and COVID happened. And they immediately cut rates to zero. They immediately rolled out basically the entire playbook they had come up with for dealing with crises. And so pretty, pretty, like before they had even reached the conclusions of this framework review, they were using all the policies they were talking about in the framework review. And so I think it certainly sort of was a pedal to the metal moment where they had to sort of think about like whether the theories that they were coming up had good practical application. Um, and I think we've seen them really embrace particularly sort of like open mouth operations as they would call them. Like they have been very vocal about the fact that they have no intention of hiking interest rates anytime soon. Like as, as Jerome Powell likes to say, he's the Fed chair, he, he likes to say that they're not even thinking about thinking about hiking interest rates. Um, and I think that, you know, that that's, it, it sounds kind of benign or funny, but it's like a big statement coming <laughs> from the Fed, which is generally very much uh, a sort of preemptive, careful, deliberative body that is constantly thinking about like what risk might be around the corner. So for them to like be so declarative that they have no intention of taking rates off of zero anytime soon. I think it's a, a big move. So going into a little bit um, about the journalistic process um, around the book, um, you write, you know, for a full-time job. You also, of course, um, are a student. Um, how do you mentally prepare for this book? Do you set aside some time? Um, what does that look like? 
so I pretty much write on weekends at this point um, because I'm in class on weeknights uh, <laughs> and because I, I work during the day. Um, so, so it actually kind of works out all right because it's just basically like another day at work except that I'm writing my book instead of writing my articles. Um, so that's nice. And then it's convenient to write a book on the topic you already cover as a journalist because a lot of the like, information gathering I need to do for the book, I just kind of do in the course of my day-to-day -day work. Um, you know, so much, so much of what I'm writing about is just based on lived experience. You know, I'm, I'm in the room when these stories are happening or in the Zoom room now. I'm not, not physically in the room. <laughs> <laughs> um, but but so, so it uh, lends itself well, I think, to writing a book when you're busy if you're writing it about the thing you already work on. And so I'm sure you have a lot of interesting conversations um, related to the book. Um, have you had one so far that you're like, this needs to go in the book? So I think it's difficult when you're a working journalist because I can't, like, if I'm have a lot of conversations I have for the book, I have on the weekend and they're specifically about the book and they're very mm -hmm. delineated. Uh, many conversations that I have that are ending up in the book are happening over the course of my day-to-day my -day work. And if I have it, like if I have that conversation and it could be useful for the paper, it belongs to the paper. So, so a lot of stuff I end up publishing immediately. But I think the thing that's really nice about a book is you can be a lot more deliberative and detailed. And so mm -hmm. for like the people who are really interested in this stuff and the nerds, I think my book is going to have a lot more detail in it than the, the articles I write. And some of the stuff that we're you know, working on this year and thinking about this year is just so wildly interesting. Like, it's just so, it's like, there's so much intrigue and like so much interesting detail around how these decisions are getting made and like what the calculus is, um, that it doesn't always lend itself well to a short, short form story, like 1200 words sometimes just does not do it justice. And so I actually really enjoy having the book to kind of like go to and say, you know, when they decided to claw back that money, here's exactly what was happening. You know, here here are all the gory details that I didn't get to tell you in the paper. Um, and so I, I think that's really fun. That's awesome. You, you talked about earlier about uh, throwing in a Gossip Girl quote. And I'm curious to know, uh, you know, how, how you make decisions on, on bringing personality to the book. And, and you said kind of making it fun. Uh, and I say that with like the context of, you know, who's going to be reading it. Typically, when I think of the Fed, I think of, you know, just, you know, Greenspan, I think of older, you know, white men. And so I'm just curious in terms of, you know, who you're writing the book for and, and what you think in terms of how you write the book. Um, like what goes into that? I think one thing that I always think about when I'm reading Fed books is that they're not super, they're, they're often just so intelligent and they're written for such an intelligent reader, you know, and such an informed reader. And sometimes I think, you know, if I were in college and I were reading this, I probably wouldn't really understand it. Like, I don't, I don't think my education level about the Fed was sufficient in college to have really enjoyed some of like the great Fed books out there. And I think that's a shame because sometimes they have just this really fantastic content and it would be great if it were a little bit more democratizable. Um, and so I think that's kind of the niche I'm trying to fill with this book. I've heard from a lot of professors over the years and a lot of high school teachers that, you know, they just don't really have anything to teach from. Um, and so I'm trying to make it the kind of book that I think the experts are going to be interested in this book just because I'm well-sourced and I have content and they'll want to read the details I'm including in the book because they're interesting and will be relevant to their jobs. Um, so I don't think I have to pitch this at the expert crowd. So what I'm trying to do is write it in a way that will make it accessible for everybody. You know, like I think 
I really enjoy reading explanatory journalism personally. Like I think it's, I think it's in like much more fun to read. Like I love Annie Lowry, um, who's now at the Atlantic. I think she's great. I think she does some really good explanatory work. My colleague, Neil Arwen, I think is really great at this. His book was, I think one of the much more accessible of the, of the fed genre. Um, and so, uh, like Michael Lewis, my book does not read like a Michael Lewis book much to my editor's dismay, I'm sure. <laughs> but like Michael Lewis, I think is another one. He's great at this. And I think, I think, you know, like if Alex, Alex Petrie at the Washington Post, who is sort of a comedy writer and like very casual, like if her tone and Michael Lewis's content like mesh together, that's kind of like the Venn diagram that I'm shooting for. I don't know if I'll achieve that. I don't know if that, that I'm as good of a writer as either Alex Petrie or Michael Lewis, but like that's, that's the sweet spot I would like to like to hit. It makes sense, you know, as the Fed's becoming more accessible to Americans, your book should reflect that as well in its uh, content and readability. So I, I love it. Yeah, well, hopefully it does. So <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. I have to explain emergency lending programs in a way that, like, you know, makes sense to the normal normal human being. Also, I do have, I uh, have, like, a whole cooking show segment that to explain neutral interest rates. So that'll be That'll be fun. Hopefully that works. I have a feeling my editor might go. That, that part hasn't been edited yet, so that may get cut, but we'll see. That's great. Um, so to wrap things up, Lauren and I do have two fun questions for you. Um, so the first one is, what is your favorite book and what are you reading right now? Ooh, that's a that's a tough question. I don't – I, like, never have a good answer to this because I feel like my favorite book changes on more or less a weekly basis. Um, <laughs> my, like, go-to – like all-time favorite books, probably East of Eden by John Steinbeck. Also, although Sirens of Titans, The Sirens of Titan by Kurt Vonnegut is a close second. Um, and currently I am reading, I actually just finished the book I was reading, um, but I, I was reading The Splendid and the Vile by uh, um, Eric Larson, which is great. It's about Churchill. If, if you're a history buff at all, it's a really good book. Big fan of East of Eden. That is definitely one of my favorite book as well. <laughs> and um, last question, who's your favorite journalist? And you can do of all time, living or dead, and then also current. You can include yourself in that. Oh. <laughs> oh. I, feel like, I feel like I work with all journalists, so I feel like this is extremely an extremely dangerous question. Oh. Um. <laughs> Maybe we should do not living anymore. <laughs> yeah. Well, for, for all time, we'll just go with Ida Tarbell because it feels safe. Like, you know, like you, you can go with, I, I feel like you can go with the classic business journalist as a, as an all-time favorite journalism, journalist. Um, so Ida Tarbell probably, um, living, I, I like, I feel like I probably shouldn't answer that question. <laughs> <laughs> no worries. It's, a, it's a tie for a Totally. Long. Okay. <laughs> Deborah Solomon, my boss. Ooh, nice. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Thank you so much, Gina. It's been a real pleasure having you today. Um, you know, I think so many, so many folks listening, whether it's, uh, you know, Professor Schmeitz uh, or some prospective students will get a lot um, from this, both learning about um, how you came to Stern and what brought you here, but also the incredible work you're writing about um, on the Fed. Thank you guys for having me. Very nice Thank to you. Thank you.